Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with J. Randall Curtis, MD, MPH, who is a senior author on an article published in the July Critical Care Medicine titled Hospital Variation and Temporal Trends in Palliative and End-of-Life Care in the ICU. Curtis is the professor and A. Bruce Montgomery American Lung Association Endowed Chair in Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and is director of the University of Washington Palliative Care Center of Excellence, all at Harborview Medical Center and the University of Washington in Seattle. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Curtis. I'm delighted to be here. Again, I'm tremendously excited to talk to you today. I've followed your work uh, since uh, the days of my fellowship. You've been an international leader in end-of-life and palliative care in the ICU, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to focus uh, on end-of-life care issues. Sure. Um, I got interested in this area while being a medical student at Johns Hopkins in the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Uh, we were caring for a lot of terminally ill young men in the hospital, and uh, I had this experience uh, as a medical student of watching end-of-life care go really well in one room and then in the next room with the same doctors and nurses uh, have it go really poorly and and felt like there must be a better way to teach this and to deliver this care that could be more consistent for all patients and families. And then during residency, I fell in love with critical care and working in the ICU and saw that as a, a really important target for improving uh, communication and improving palliative end-of-life care since uh, it, it's where we take care of the sickest patients and, and many of our patients in that setting will uh, will die and will need uh, end-of-life care. Thank you. Um, and, and so in this current study that we're, we're discussing, you performed a further analysis of a cluster randomized trial that you conducted in your region of the country. Uh, and we're looking to evaluate for temporal trends and hospital variation in the performance uh, and outcomes of patients who died in the intensive care units or shortly thereafter. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the context of this study and the original trial that was uh, published in the Blue Journal? Sure. We were interested in this study in, in developing a, and evaluating a quality improvement intervention to improve palliative and end-of-life care in the ICU. Uh, and we developed an intervention that had five components to be delivered to, to the ICU that included clinician education, local champions around palliative care in each ICU, uh, as well as feedback of family satisfaction data, involvement of the ICU directors, offering pathways and protocols to each ICU around improving palliative and end-of-life care. And we tested it since the intervention focused on the ICU or the hospital, we conducted a cluster randomized trial where uh, six hospitals were randomized to receive the intervention, six hospitals randomized to not receive the intervention, at least initially during the randomized trial, and then those hospitals got the intervention after the randomized trial was over. The intervention was successfully implemented. We were able to get into these hospitals to perform the intervention. Clinicians were happy with it. Uh, clinicians actually felt like it improved the care they delivered, but we weren't able to document any changes at the level of individual patients and, and families. We surveyed family members and nurses around the quality of dying and looked for indicators of palliative care in the medical records and uh, weren't able to show any differences in the randomized trial. 
So, but that then gave us a lot of data uh, to ask the questions in this current uh, uh, paper where we were interested in looking at changes over time during the five years that the study was going on, uh, as well as differences between the individual hospitals. And if, if the trial were, were negative, why was there a thought that perhaps uh, there was improvement over uh, the five-year time period? I think one of the reasons I was interested in looking at this is that I hear from a lot of my colleagues that they feel that palliative and life care in the ICU has improved dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. And um, and I, I think that may be right if we went all the way back to you know the late 1990s when the support study was was done showing very poor quality of end of life care in the ICU. Maybe things have gotten better since then. But at least in the five years covered by this study from 2003 to 2008, we did not see any evidence of improvement over time, uh, suggesting that there that this is not something that we've sort of fixed. And in fact, one one trend you did identify was actually a decrease uh, in the uh, family conferences occurring within 72 hours of ICU admission. I was wondering what your, your thoughts about why this might have occurred. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. When we when we conducted the randomized trial, we saw that the intervention was associated with a decrease in in these in family conferences in the first 72 hours and. At the time that we published the randomized trial, I thought, well, maybe this is just a, a issue of multiple comparisons. We had we had one primary outcome, but we had a total of about 15 different outcome measures, and this is this is the only one that got worse. So maybe it was just by chance alone. But then, with this second paper showing changes over time, and again showing now that the decrease in formal family conferences, I. I don't know for sure, but I wonder whether, in fact, this is not a real finding and, and that perhaps the explanation is that as we have focused more on communicating with families, uh, many of these hospitals started to incorporate families on morning rounds in the ICU. It may be that we're touching base with the families more, but that's had the unintended consequence of actually decreasing the number of formal sit-down family conferences that we conduct with families. And as an expert in in family conferences, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on the on the differences between this more formal structure and the informal communication that occurs, and and why it's important? Yeah, uh, and I think that both are important, uh, but I do think that the more informal communication at the bedside is often more around uh, giving families updates and maybe answering a couple of questions, but we often don't have a lot of time to go into more detail. And and in the formal family conferences, we know from studies we've done before that they're, on average, they're often about 30 minutes long. There's a lot more opportunity to make sure we understand the family's perspective, um, that we get a chance to talk about the patient's goals and values, uh, and ensure that we're able to answer all the family's questions. Uh, it's also a much more effective environment for conducting shared decision-making, uh, which is much harder to do in the informal bedside conversation. So I think, although I think both kinds of conversations are important, I think if we're seeing a decrease in these formal family consequences, I, I think that may have uh, negative effects. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one thing that's important to emphasize. Uh, I guess, as you point out, as, as I think physicians uh, become more uh, comfortable with communication, they may be having more informal communication, but that the structure of the family conference is, is at least equally important um, in, uh, in shared decision-making moving forward. Right. You know, one other aspect uh, that you noted in this, in this uh, study was that the discussion of prognosis, I guess within the context of the family conferences, uh, was fairly low. And I was wondering if you thought that was more of a documentation issue or, or an actual process of, of, um, of care issue. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that's a really important point to make is that when we looked at conduct of family conferences or discussions of prognosis, we're looking at documentation in the medical record. We didn't have a way to capture all the communication that actually occurs. Um, I, I think my sense is that for the conduct of formal family conferences, I think the documentation is often pretty good if you look at everybody's documentation, all the nurses and social workers, which is what we did, as well as the physicians. But, um, but I, think you're, I think particularly for prognosis, um, you're right that there may be discussions of prognosis that are not documented. Um, having said that, I also think that documenting these discussions is important in and of itself. It's really the best way for other clinicians uh, to be able to see what's been discussed with the families, particularly, for example, the nurses working on the night shift who may not uh, have an opportunity to interact with the physicians in quite the same way. Um, and if they don't have any way to know what was discussed with the family, it's harder for them to help support that. I'm wondering, as you're talking in, in, in your ICU, uh, do you have a, a, a more formal way of documenting um, family meetings and their discussions? We currently do not. We are in the process now of developing a template for documenting family conferences, and I personally think that that would be an advance, both in terms of ensuring that trying to improve the documentation of the communication that occurs. I also think that these kinds of templates can actually be used to improve the communication if, if uh, the clinicians conducting the family conferences are seeing the kinds of questions that are sort of expected of them on the template. Um, but I also say, I will say that not everybody is enamored with this idea, that I think we've had some pushback from clinicians who feel that overuse of templates is making the medical record harder and harder to be able to uh, decipher. Sure. The other aspect of, the, of this study was really looking at uh, uh, inter-hospital differences uh, in terms of the uh, delivery of end-of-life and palliative care. Uh, and you found significant differences and not really differences in terms of a global um, process, but in regards to specific uh, differences within individual outcome measures. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. We were interested in this question because there is a lot of data showing regional and hospital-to-hospital -hospital variability in the intensity of care uh, at the end of life in the U.S. and, and worldwide. Um, but very little data beyond simply intensity of care, the proportion of patients dying in the ICU and the number, for example, the number of days in the ICU prior to death has been well studied, but, but not sort of issues around the quality 
uh, of palliative and end-of-life care. So we wanted to see if we saw the same kind of variability from hospital to hospital. And, and in fact, we did see uh, significant variability on all of our measures of quality uh, of palliative and end-of-life care, including family surveys, nurse surveys, as well as chart documentation. But as you alluded to, we we did not find that some hospitals were good at all these markers and other and other hospitals were bad at all these markers. But instead, what we found that it was that every hospital had things that they did well, and every hospital had things where they uh, did poorly. Uh, suggesting, I think, that uh, one of the important implications is that improving palliative care in a given ICU is going to require first figuring out what the important targets are, where that ICU has room for improvement. And you, you noted actually in the in trial that uh, within uh, your institution, uh, there were significant trends of improvement suggesting that the intervention was successful. And I was wondering, are there whether special uh, features about the uh, about your ICU or whether what was there a, a different needs assessment uh, for your ICU or what might else explain uh, that those differences yeah my ICU at Harborview Medical Center was part of a pilot study we did before the randomized controlled trial and and then we evaluated that in a before after design found that we had significant improvements in nurses ratings with the quality of dying we had improvements in the family ratings as well, and actually about the same magnitude as the nurse improvements, but smaller numbers of family members, and it was it was a trend, but not statistically significant. Um, and then we also saw a significant reduction in uh, days in the ICU prior to death, suggesting the intervention decreased the prolongation of dying we often see in the ICU. So we viewed that as positive, and that was part of the reason we went on to do the randomized trial. And it, it's hard for me to know exactly why we seem to have an effect at our ICU or at our hospital and, and not elsewhere, but I suspect that the reason is because the investigators were also clinicians in our hospital. It was really an intervention done from within, as opposed to the cluster randomized trial where we were the experts coming from outside. And we got good buy-in from ICU clinicians and ICU directors in these other hospitals, but I just don't think it's quite the same. I think I think one of the lessons is that quality improvement really requires that there be an internal team that is driving the efforts. And uh, I think it helps increase buy-in, uh, and it helps ensure that the intervention is adapted to the local uh, environment and the local needs. Yeah, those are great points. You know, it, it makes me think, and you alluded to this earlier, that that sure, since 1995 or so, uh, late 90s, many of us have uh, really improved uh, communication and end-of-life care uh, and symptom management in our ICUs, uh, but that we all have individual um, uh, strengths and, and weaknesses in areas in which we can improve. I'm wondering what tools uh, there are to try and get a better needs assessment uh, in the individual ICU and to go about those uh, methods of quality improvement. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question, and, and there are not uh, formal tools to do that, but I do think that talking to clinicians, particularly ICU nurses, and uh, perhaps surveying them and, and talking to families as well about what, you know, what the ICU does well and where there's significant room for improvement is a, is a really important first step. Um, and I know 
you know, as I travel around and talk to nurses and others in ICUs, I think, I think there are some, uh, common denominators. Often, uh, there are not, uh, formal policies or procedures to ensure family conferences occur, uh, early for patients at high risk of death or high risk of long ICU stays. Um, nurses often, uh, complain about a lot of the physician variability in how these issues are addressed. Uh, that I think is a target for quality improvement. Uh, but I do think, as, as you're alluding to, I think a really important first step is to, is to really get a, uh, a, a survey or a, a sense of the lay of the land for that particular ICU and the, and the targets that are most likely to be effective uh, in that ICU. Great. Yeah, we certainly, uh, again, I think all have uh, much interest in, in room for improvement uh, it's, uh, it's hard work, but certainly uh, can pay out for our patients and their families in the end. Yeah. Are, there other, are there other points that you would like to get across uh, to the audience? Um, I, I think the, uh, the other thing that we did see is we did see an increase in, uh, over time in the assessment of pain uh, in the last 24 hours of death. And I think you know, pain assessment has been a real target for Joint Commission and others. Uh, to improve quality of care in the hospital. So I think that's, that's encouraging. Um, but I, I do think that our data suggests that there are still significant variability in how this care is delivered and significant room for improvement, uh, likely in, in all of our institutions. Great, and thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate uh, speaking with you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Prepare for the critical care boards by attending SCCM's Adult Multiprofessional Critical Care Board Review Course, MCCBRC, to be held at the JW Marriott Hotel from August 10 to 14, 2013 in Washington, D.C., USA. The Adult MCCBRC is designed for practitioners who are preparing for the critical care subspecialty exams, as well as those seeking review on critical care. For more information and to register, visit www.sccm.org slash board review. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.